sway. Certified everywhere, ain't got a premium resume. Take off. Talk crazy, I pull up underlay. RP to Nate, dog. I had to regulate. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode, sports episode of Center of Attention. A lot of different things happening for this episode. First off, um, there's live sports that we can talk about. I'll break down um, the UFC event that took place last night. I actually thought that for all of the circumstances going on and not having a crowd... Um, and, and having all the different commentators set up at different places worked really well. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about all those. I'll s- kind of give my thoughts on whether or not I feel like um, I feel where these fighters are going. There was a, a pretty big retirement last night as well on that card. Um, and we also have some random stuff in the news happening. Uh, NFL. You know, every time that we we need something to talk about, they're gonna have something to talk about. And Earl Thomas gave a bunch to talk about. Also, Andy Dalton at the end of last week made a pretty big um, splash. A little bit. It was actually last Sunday, but I just haven't been able to talk about it yet. Um, and and then also we have the fact that now I'm not no longer in the uh, former WAP cave back in my dorm room in Gunnison. I am now in the WAP cave. It's probably more aptly named because uh, my brother lives down here as well when we're both back home. But uh, I drove back from Gunnison yesterday, finished up my last... um, I finished up my last res life responsibility that I had to. I was on duty up until the 8th. Uh, Woke up yesterday morning, got my stuff together. I had packed most of it on... Excuse me, Friday, um, and then I I just put whatever else I had in there, and then met with Joel. Um, shout out to Joel. I know that he listens to this show, um, and and then he let me get on the road, head back home, and then my parents actually kind of surprised me with a little bit of a family get together. Um, thinking about it before I came home, but there was no I hadn't seen a lot of these. Um, I haven't seen a lot of my family members since January, because when I came back for uh, when I came back for spring break, obviously that's when all of the um, news came out about the pandemic. That's when the restrictions and the social distancing started to come out. So we didn't see each other, and uh, that was that was pretty tough. But I'm glad that I got to see a lot of them yesterday. I know I didn't get to see both sides of my family, but. My mom's side came over, got to see my grandma, my cousin Sammy, um, who, you know, she was, uh, she, she is pregnant and I hadn't gotten to see her since she had announced that she was pregnant and that was cool to get to see her. Um, and then there's also UFC fights coming up this next weekend. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Overall, I think this will be a, a good episode and there's plenty for us to go over and all of that just trying to pull up the results I watched we watched I believe about half of the prelims on ESPN and then we watched the entire maiden card last night um, but uh, I, I guess I'll start off first by just thanking you guys for listening um, this is gonna be a little bit different different than it has been when I was at my room 
Um, don't really have control over all the sound that's going to be happening, so might hear something. I'm down in the basement, and there's a vent over the top of me, so we might hear the TV or something from uh, the living room that's directly above me. But I'm happy to be home. Um, it was definitely time. I loved hanging out with Kyle and all the people that were still down in Gunnison. I feel like we made the best of a, a shitty situation and when we had to come back and then all the regulations and stuff. And uh, The regulations, the stay-at-home order was bad and in places where there was a lot of stuff, but in Gunnison where there's not that much to do, I feel like that was a, that was a tough situation for everybody, for everybody to be in. Um, but I feel like that it's it's not going to be as bad as I thought it was. When it originally started, I was nervous about a lot of the small businesses down in that community. It's a very tourist-based economy. And I wasn't sure whether or not we'd be able to get all of the different fishers and hunters in. But uh, the Friday before I came home, the, even Kyle, Kyle and I were sitting in the car and we were just talking about how much busier the town was as a whole now that the stay-at-home order has been lifted, people are starting to feel like it's okay to open up a little bit more. Um, it, it was a it, it was an interesting experience. I mean, I didn't have anybody on my floor, so that was something to where I basically was just there up until I was on duty to finish school. That was nice. That was a good. Um, instead of having, you know, if I had a distraction, if I would have stayed here, I would have had distractions, responsibilities around the house, and I'm not complaining about those, but it does take a little bit of time, and then I probably would have already gotten a job um, instead of being able to relax for this week. And I feel like when I went out there, I got the best schoolwork that I've done all year and turned that all in. I was basically graduated a week before anybody expected me to be. And now I'm just excited for commencement. Um, that's my my focus for now, making sure that the podcast keeps going, um, adding a little bit more stuff to it as we go, and uh, I'm probably going to have Dom on next week instead of this week to uh, talk about some draft picks. Uh, I know I promised you guys to do a breakdown of the draft picks, but then last week Kyle decided that he wanted to be on the sports episode, and we did more of just a... Um, sports-based conversation which I think was, it was good conversation and then everybody got to see how little of a life I do have outside of the sports world so yeah everybody has been impacted by this um, but those of us who rely on sports for a little bit of a break or that's just what we identify with I love just watching people compete and that wasn't there so it, it was good to uh, get that episode in last week I feel like we had good discussions brought up some good points and uh yeah i i I, i'm glad that kyle got to be on those last few episodes um i know when he first came on everybody was a little bit taken aback by his personality he was a little bit more abrasive but when it's just him and him and me one-on-one and there's no alcohol or anything rolling around the circle i feel like we have some pretty good conversations both about life and about sports so I'm um, glad that he he's gotten to be on those episodes, and now he's still out in Gunnison. He's getting ready to start his maintenance job, so um, I know he's going to be doing big things. I've, when we have my graduation party, he said he'd come back, and Dan is going to be somewhere close to here and be able to um, travel and stuff over to the house, so that'll be nice. They'll have a little bit 
more variety of stuff that's happening on the show. But that's basically the update about everything that's going on. This is the first time since the spring break episodes where Dom was on and we talked about, we did the final Gunnison Sports Talk radio. And then uh, we also just had him on for another one of the conversation episodes. So this is uh, new, new space, kind of. Haven't actually recorded a full episode from the basement yet. I've done intros and stuff when we were doing, when I was able to um, do the podcast that way, but and before I switched the format. Anyways, we have live sports to talk about. And I think what we're going to do is I'll, I'll open with the event that happened last night. Um, I'll go into the random news that... Uh, will that popped up last week and then I'll round out just by talking about the fights that are upcoming this weekend um, shout out to Jacksonville for allowing this event to take place I was talking about it all week leading up to it I talked about it a lot yesterday before it actually started I'm sure people are sick of being around me when this was about to start but I think that this is one of the more important events of the last three months this is uh, the first time that there was an athletic competition being held, and I feel like going into this, everybody else was taking a look and seeing if the UFC was going to be able to pull this off, if they were still going to have a good product, and whether or not people were still going to watch. I'm sure they have crazy numbers. Um, the numbers don't really matter anymore for the UFC. It used to be a pay-per-view buy model. Now they just get a whole bunch of money up front from ESPN. They just have to supply the certain amount of fights and events that they have each weekend. Um, so I, I do think that this would have been one of the higher grossing pay-per-view numbers of all time just because it's the only thing on. And even I, I feel even people who don't necessarily always watch the fights were excited for something to be on. It's a lot like The Last Dance, uh, which I'll watch the new episodes coming out about, I believe the first one was his father's murder, and I'm, I'm not sure what episode 8 was about. But I've been watching that. Um, a couple days after they originally air on the ESPN app. Those have been great. Uh, I think that's probably the best sports documentary that I've watched for a long time. That and the Benoit documentary are my two favorite so far this year. This one's just a little bit longer, a little bit more in-depth, and I didn't know specifically a lot of the information that happened before. I knew a lot of the stuff that happened with Benoit, uh, but I didn't know a lot of the stuff that about Jordan. So I'm enjoying that. I'll... I'll talk to you guys a little bit more about the uh, this my take on the series so far and the different things that I knew, thought I knew and didn't and all that kind of stuff. But we'll start off with UFC 249. We were able to watch, so we watched from Alex Alexi Olenek and Fabrizio Verdum, and then that was our first fight that we watched. So that was a heavyweight fight. Uh, Fabricio Verdum, obviously a former uh, UFC heavyweight champion. He ended Fedor Milianenko's famous, world-famous 18-fight uh, unbeaten streak. He hadn't been beaten since Pride disbanded back in the early 2000s, and Verdum was the one who originally submitted him. This was a little bit more of a dragging-on fight, a little bit. Uh, when heavyweights come out, you never really know what kind of fight you're going to get. You can either get two guys that come out and know that they're not going to have that much cardio and come out and swing as much as they can for the fences. Uh, these guys did not do that. They were hitting. They they had plenty of strikes thrown. Alexi Olenek landed 149 total strikes, 
and uh, Fedor, or not Fedor, Fabricio landed 70 total strikes. So there was a lot of punches being thrown. Um, I I wasn't sure who won this one just because it was that way, and it ended up being a split decision. 29-28, um, 29-28, and then 28-29. And Olenek w ended up winning, which is big for him. Fabricio Verdum, not as dominant as we've seen him in the past. And this was a fight where you could tell um, he was one of those guys that benefited greatly from the TRT exemptions that the UFC used to give out for fighters who needed it. And he used to be just stout, stacked, great, great jujitsu practitioner, and then he was getting really good on his feet. Um, if you watched his fight against Travis Brown with the opening flying sidekick, uh, it wasn't that same for Brucey over Doom. Didn't look very good. I thought Olenek won. I didn't think that it would be a split decision. I thought that it would be unanimous. Fabricio did land a couple takedowns, but he didn't really do any damage. And he was holding him there, but I think the judges are finally starting to get wise to guys that are just um, grabbing and holding instead of actually trying to fight and, and gain a dominant position. So uh, Alexei Olenek was the first one that we watched. He won by split decision. And then the uh, prelude to the main card, two legends, Anthony Showtime Pettis, if you don't recognize the name, you'll recognize the highlights. Search um, WEC Cage Kick, and that'll be Anthony Pettis' main career highlight. Fought Donald Cerrone, which I feel like Donald has now fought uh, since they haven't had fights in the last three months. I feel like he's fought pretty much six times in the last nine events. It's it's insane how, how active he is and how often he does fight. Because if you remember before this, he had gotten knocked out by McGregor back in... Uh, I think it was February. Yeah, it was February because it was the week after the Super Bowl. Uh, this was a really entertaining fight. These guys have fought before. That was kind of Pettis' coming out party early on in his UFC career. Cut Cowboy with a body kick, and he was never able to recover. But this time they were fighting at 170 instead of 155. Both have kind of had career resurgences at 170. Um, and the... The ending of this fight is what you really want to see basically all the time. It's just two guys have their mouthpieces in. They're going to bite down as hard as they can, plant their feet, and throw. Uh, but you could tell that they had great respect for each other. I would have, I wasn't sure who was going to win this one. I would have probably given this a split decision as well. Pettis ended up winning unanimous decision, 29-28 all the way through. Um, but this was a great lead into the main card because up until that point, I was able to catch the Spar Carlos Esparza-Michelle Watterson fight now, and that was a split decision, but it didn't look like they had much action going on. Cowboy and Pettis had action throughout. Cowboy, you could see, was going for more of the takedown attempts, and Pettis was doing a good job of fighting those off. They both landed really big shots. Um, Cowboy had Pettis' mouth bleeding, and Pettis opened up a cut on Cowboy's face, so they, they were going at it pretty good. It's a good fight between two legends. I'm not sure where this is going to put Pettis now because this was a that was the main main fight of the prelim card. Um, I think Donald is past the point where he's going to be in championship contention. He, I don't know if he was ranked going in, but he shouldn't have been, and he had just lost a big opportunity against Conor McGregor. He's much more of a gatekeeper now than he is a championship contender. I think he's. Finally, I think over the last couple fights, he's been making that shift gradually. And then last night was a little bit more giving in to that. He said he's not going anywhere. I think that he still has plenty of fights in him. I feel bad for how 
poorly. I talked about him after that McGregor fight, but even he came out and said that he had no business being out there. He wasn't ready to go, wasn't able to get up for the fight, and if you can't get up for a fight, especially a fight in the cage in front of millions of people, uh, it's definitely not the right thing to do. I thought after that he was possibly going to look to retire, but he decided to come back quicker than I ever would have anticipated, and he was able to uh, have a pretty pretty entertaining fight. I thought that he had a chance to win just because of the way he was landing some of his shots. I, I felt like that was pretty good for him. But, like I said, I don't see him... He, he'll win in pretty entertaining fights every now and then, but this is definitely not something that I would... I would not be expecting Cowboy to hold up a belt. I think Pettis, this puts him in the right direction. But, if I... I'll pull up the... Walter Weight rankings real quick. Alright, so at one seventy. Neither Cowboy or Pettis were in the top ten, which I think is fair. Uh, Pettis looks a lot healthier at 170, but he is a little bit more of a tweener, and I think that his he was a champion at lightweight, obviously, but I think that was the only weight class he was going to be able to win a championship in. If you look at the top 10 in the 170-pound division, you have Kamaru Usman as the champion, um, Jorge Masvidal as the n number two contender, Colby Covington, Douglas Lima. I feel like Cowboy and Pettis could have entertaining fights against these guys, especially Jorge. Jorge's a good matchup for both of them, but Kamaru, Kamaru, if you know anything about him, if you saw how dominant he was in his win against Tyron Woodley, who a lot of people thought was possibly moving towards being the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the, the in the company, y you know, he can wrestle, and he's tough, and, and he's a, a mean mean individual. Uh, his last fight against Colby Covington, he got a doctor stoppage because he had broken Covington's jaw to the point where he couldn't open his mouth anymore, so the doctor stopped it. And then Colby Covington, great wrestler in his own right, um, Douglas Lima is a, a big guy, and he's been fighting against guys that were a, a lot more established than a Donald Cerrone at the division. That was a it was a good way to end the prelim card, and then moving into the main card, started off at the heavyweight division, Greg Hardy, Yoren DeCastro. Um, this was a, a lot like the Olenek Verdum fight, where it was two guys that were not in good enough shape. Greg Hardy, I don't know if it's just inexperience. It's, that's probably what it is, but he has one of the most athletically imposing, physically imposing bodies in MMA. And he had, I think, a six inch reach advantage and a six inch height advantage over DeCastro, and he wasn't able to dictate where the fight was fought from. He was either too far out to where even he couldn't make connection with a punch, or uh, he he was, there was no, he couldn't, couldn't check the leg kick. Um, DeCastro's one of those guys, he's six foot, 
and 250. He could easily be a 205er. I don't think that he's built to be a heavyweight. Greg Hardy, I don't care for him as a person. If you know his personal history from his NFL days, he is no longer in the NFL, was a Pro Bowl defensive end for the Cowboys twice. He got cut the first time after his first domestic dispute with his wife, um, and then he got cut for good after the second domestic dispute. If we go look at the heavyweight rankings, Greg Hardy is definitely not in the top ten, but I don't even see him competing with anybody in this division. I could barely see him competing against some of the top light heavyweights, let alone the guys like, I think Alistair Overeem would destroy him, Rosenstruck, who ended up getting TKO'd last night pretty pretty gloriously by Francis Ngannou, we'll talk about that. Even Ryan Bader, who is a former light heavyweight, would just dominate him with his wrestling, and then he also has a better understanding of striking and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm, I'm disappointed that Greg Hardy's still allowed to get these cupcake fights in the UFC. I hope that they give him somebody good in the next fight, somebody who actually does know how to fight and is a legitimate heavyweight body type, and that should finally dispel the rumors that he's going to be anything in the UFC. Next fight picked up the excitement. It was a tone setter for the rest of the card, too. After the first fight, there was not another one that went all five rounds. Jeremy Stevens, Calvin Cater at featherweight, Going into the fight, um, Volkanovski is the featherweight champion in the UFC. Neither, or Calvin Cater was the 10th ranked featherweight going into the fight. Jeremy Stevens has had a very long career, and he is also one of the more decorated knockout artists in all of the organization, all of MMA. So I thought this was this one was going to be bombs away no matter what, and that they delivered on that. Calvin Cater ended up winning in the second round, um, got into a striking, a little bit of a striking match, ended up coming away clean with an elbow, and that put Stevens down. And then when he was on the ground, he finished up his ground and pound with an elbow again. That cut open a big, big portion of Stevens' forehead. And he was out after that. So that was a good... I felt like all of these stoppages were good. We'll talk about why I say that coming up. Calvin Cater, big win over Jeremy Stevens. It was a marquee win since this was one of the bigger events of the year. And uh, that should vault him in the rankings a little bit. Um, And I would see him possibly... I could see him going up against Chinsung John, Korean Zombie, who's the number 7 ranked guy. Possibly a Yara Rodriguez, um, guy who actually just beat his last win in the UFC was against Jeremy Stevens. So I think that he's kind of on the cusp of moving into the top half of the division, but he's still got a couple guys that he has to beat still. And he's uh, he's a good fighter, very very talented, very good um, striker. I'm just not sure if he can handle guys like Brian Ortega, Max Holloway, or Volkanovski at this point in his career. He's only 21-4, and four, so he's got good experience but doesn't have the most experience, which could go could help him in the long run as well. Guys that don't have as many fights seem to have a little bit more time in the UFC. Moving on to the next fight, third fight of the main card, Francis Ngannou 
Six total strikes landed. They were all significant. Five to the head, one to the body. 22nd, first round knockout. And it wasn't wasn't one of those knockouts where you have to wonder if the guy was going to get up or not. It took about five minutes for Rosenstruck to even come back to with consciousness. And then it took another five to get him up on his feet and somewhat lead him to the back. Francis Ngannou, uh, he, went, he went through that big spike early on. And that was going to happen because of his body type and just how much of a freak of nature he is. If you haven't seen him, um, you should go Google a picture of him and see how a six foot four, 255, 260-pound man has abs like that. His arms are gigantic. His arms are big and long. His shoulders look like boulders. He's just a freak of nature. They call him the Predator. Um, and I think he probably could have filled out that suit pretty well and gave Arnold a pretty good run for his money in that movie. He he had that big boom early on to where he had knocked everybody out, got the title shot against Stipe. Stipe, obviously a lot more seasoned as a fighter, tough guy. Thank, uh, I want to give a shout-out to Stipe because as, as of this moment, the UFC heavyweight division is actually in a little bit of a limbo just because um, Stipe Miocic is the heavyweight champion. He's also a volunteer firefighter in the Cleveland area. So as with all of this COVID stuff happening, the pandemic, he's on the front lines of this as well. So shout out to Stipe. Um, Shout out to all the different first responders and medical professionals that have been working. Everybody who's been deemed essential and has been having to go to work in the face of all of this nonsense that's been going on around us. And I don't mean nonsense as in the virus was nonsense. I mean nonsense as in the reaction of some people. Um, But then he, after that fight, he tried to have that bounce back fight. A lot of people were expecting something like this, uh, this last fight against Rosenstruck to happen when he fought Derek Lewis. Didn't happen. You could tell he was gun shy. He had never been dominated like he got dominated by Stipe before. Uh, And that was really playing into his head. But he's come back the last couple fights. Um, th- that Rosenstruck knockout, it won't take too much of your time to go search that. Uh, it was one of the first things that popped up if you were following along with the UFC on Twitter when it did happen, and it's 20 seconds, five punches, bing, bang, boom. Rosenstruck's knocked out. Francis Ngannou's leaving Jacksonville with a win and moving himself up in the heavyweight rankings. Ngannou was number three. So whether whatever's going to happen with Stipe, and if DC wants to come back, Daniel Cormier wants to come back and fight uh, a guy other than Stipe for the title, that could be where I see Francis going next. Either title shot or Cormier. I don't see him. He's already beaten Curtis Blades, who's the fourth-ranked heavyweight fighter, twice. Junior Dos Santos has nothing to do for him. Derek Lewis, I'm not willing to give that fight a chance until uh, Ngannou gets another shot at the title. And then after that, I mean, why would the number three-ranked fighter in the division, possibly going to move up to number two-ranked fighter in the division, fight anybody lower than number six. That just doesn't make any sense. Uh, A possibility, this is something that I would like, since Greg Hardy and Francis draw numbers, Greg Hardy, from his former football background, I believe a lot of people watch his fights just the same way that they used to watch Floyd Mayweather's fights to see if he's going to get beat. I, I would have no problem with Francis fighting Greg Hardy uh, probably won't be the most exciting fight, or it'll be exciting, but it won't be the most fair fight. I'm not sure a, a commission would sanction it, 
but they then again they did sanction Tito and Chuck when they were both mid 40s so anything is possible and when in doubt the UFC has shown us this during the pandemic you can always go to an Indian reservation or buy your own island um, that's what I kind of want to see for Francis next it's a little bit different with the heavyweight division obviously with the pandemic there's not a lot of fights scheduled out right now so we're not sure what's going to happen with anybody else and since Stipe is fighting on the front lines of that, it's also going to be a little bit longer before we actually do have a championship fight at the heavyweight division. Co-main event, bantamweight championship fight, Henry Cejudo, Triple C, Olympic gold medalist, former 125-pound champion, and now 135-pound champion, defended his belt against unranked Dominic Cruz, a guy who hadn't fought in three years, was one of the most injury-riddled people that I think has ever fought uh, in the UFC. Also, one of the most arrogant guys I've ever watched compete in a sport. I have never... I was always a California kid, Uriah Faber guy anyways. So when Cruz would beat him and dominate the division for as long as he did, that always stuck in my craw a little bit. Um, but last night was why I thought... I figured out why I had never really liked him. And it goes all the way back to the first time that he and Uriah fought back in the WEC, and that was at 145. But it was, I think it was like Cruz, it was under 10 fights for Cruz. Uriah had already been fighting for a long time, had been the WEC champion for a long time. Cruz made a mistake, got choked out. But instead of giving Faber credit for capitalizing on the mistake and choking out the young guy who didn't know what he was doing, he decided to make the excuse that he had only been fighting for three times, he just made one mistake. And that's what really what started their big rivalry between Faber and Cruz was Faber was explaining to everybody everybody that if this wasn't a fight, Cruz wouldn't have survived because he was caught in such a deep choke. Like if this wasn't a sanctioned event, if this was just a street fight, Cruz probably wouldn't be alive. And I 100% agree with him. I think that this... Cruz's entire career is based off of a lot of impressive wins, but when he loses, he loses like a true classless human being. I'm trying to be as politically correct with that as I can, but it's just very hard because he's such a difficult person to like. He made the the controversy started from last night. Henry Cejudo goes through the first round. Uh, they're both feeling each other out. Cruz basically gave himself a two-round window as to when he would get his fight legs back since he hadn't fought for so long. And he hadn't fought a guy like Cejudo, who is 5'4", very explosive, very compact. Best wrestler, I think, that's best American wrestler that's ever competed in the UFC uh, at any weight class. Uh, Henry Cejudo, if you don't know, was the youngest American Olympic champion in freestyle wrestling back in 2008. He, I remember when I was super young wrestling for the Pomona Youth Club and he and his brother Angel came in and did a little bit of a clinic for us. We got to watch them roll, which was just awesome because as good as Henry is, Angel was just as good, maybe even a little bit better. Angel's his older brother, so they always had that rivalry going. And then Henry graduated from Coronado High School down in Colorado Springs, but he'd grown up most of his life in Arizona, and he was only going to Coronado so that he can also train at the OTC a couple times a week. And he he was already in full 
freestyle mode when he won his state championship. I remember watching him throughout that state tournament. A lot of his matches were ending 30-15, to 15, and if you know anything about wrestling, takedown is two points and escape is one point, and a technical fall is when one person gets up by 15, the match is over. And he would do that, but a lot of guys do that by taking a guy down, tilting him, getting back points, because there's a lot more opportunity for you to build up that big lead. Henry Cejudo was so good uh, as a takedown wrestler that he would be able to take everybody that he wrestled in the state tournament down, all the best guys from all the different regions across the state at the 5A level. Uh, I believe Coronado's 5A. They're either 5A or 4A. And he beat all these guys by taking them down 15 times and letting them up 15 times. It, it was insane. So obviously, Cruz gave himself a two-round window. 4.58 is the official time of the stoppage. Henry Cejudo won by KO. Originally started with a knee and then some ground, ground and pound. But when he got hit with the knee, Cruz was going in for a takedown. Uh, Cejudo countered with a good kick. I think that was what he was going for. Ended up hitting his knee on Cruz's head, knocking him down, and then he swarmed on him and hit him with about 11 unanswered punches before Cruz even started to stand up. The referee called it at that point, but he called it at the point where Cruz was starting to stand up and I put that in air quotes I even though you I know you guys can't see it because he was only standing up because Cejudo was finally getting off of him and the referee had tapped Cejudo and got him to stop punching him if the referee was not there Cruz would not have stand, stood up because Cejudo would have just kept punching and punching and punching until Cruz's face would have been inverted at that point not only does he not give Cejudo the respect of Hey, I went for a takedown. You kicked me. You you defended my move, and then we're cap. You capitalized on it and beat me. No, he didn't give him any credit. He said that he was still fighting. He was still in it. He specifically told the referee, "Hey, let me go in there until I can't get up. If I'm still conscious, if I'm not completely knocked out on the floor, let me keep going." That's not how this works. This is a sport. This is not a street fight to the death. When you don't defend yourself for 11 punches, that is the time for the referee to step in, and that is the time for the referee to end the fight. And that's what happened, and it was a great fight. It's tainted by the the bitchiness of how Cruz handled the loss, but it was, it was a great fight up until then. But even if you look at just the comparisons for the two, Cejudo landed 56 shots, out of 86, Cruz landed 33 out of 81. Uh, Cejudo landed 53 out of 83 significant strikes. Cruz landed 33 out of 81. 24 shots to the head for Cejudo. 6 shots to the body. 23 shots to the legs. He was tearing up Dominic Cruz's legs. And then obviously uh, the knee to the head at the end of the fight. It was total domination. If it wasn't going to be the second round, it was going to be the third fourth or fifth round i don't think that fight was going all five because cejudo was on that night and then henry ended up retiring so congratulations to henry cejudo if he does stay in retirement but he does make a case and that's where his whole triple c uh character gimmick came from was that he was the olympic champion the flyweight champion and then the bantamweight champion so instead of being champ champ he's triple c um i think that he does have a pretty good argument for being the greatest combat sports athlete of all time because I don't remember anybody else doing that. Uh, Yoel Romero never won a gold medal at the Olympics, never won a title in the UFC. 
uh, I'm not sure who you could put up there. I mean, obviously Mighty Mouse with his dominance over a division, but I feel like Mighty Mouse kind of got the same treatment as Ronda, where they were so far ahead of everybody else that they were they dominated for a long time, but that was only because they were fighting guys who didn't know how to fight, and then once everybody kind of caught up to them, they had never evolved to the point where they were going to be world-class. They were great fighters, never world-class. And that's where I would put... Um, that's where I would put Ronda Rousey, and that's where I would put DJ John, Demetrius Johnson. Um, I think that if Henry Cejudo claims to be the greatest combat sports athlete in the world, he has an argument for it. And I don't know who you would argue against it. Karelin could be. Karelin never fought, though. Um, there are some others that come to mind, but it's very difficult because you either... A lot of the fighters that I can think of off the top of my head either have the Olympic caliber background or they have the UFC dominance background. Nobody has both except for Henry Cejudo. Congratulations to Henry Cejudo on, on a great career. Hopefully, um, if he stays in retirement, hopefully he has a, a great, great long life. I know that he said that he's trying to start a family with his new wife down in Arizona. That's great for him. Um, not necessarily a Colorado native, but I, I root for him like he's a Colorado native. Moving on to the main event. This one ended in the fifth round, but this was the war that I think a lot of people were expecting and I think a lot of people wanted. Um, I've seen a handful, I would say, of great fights. Not necessarily the most hyped, not necessarily the most viewed, but just technically two guys that were fighting and, and you could tell that neither of them were backing down. They were both landing huge shots. They both kept coming back. They would both answer each other. And the two that I can think of off the top of my head were Rory McDonald and Robbie Lawler back in 2015 for their second fight. That was for the light head, uh, the welterweight title right before Conor McGregor won his first interim belt over Chad Mendes. But that fight was back and forth. Uh, Lawler dominated the first two rounds. McDonald comes back, wobbles him in the third, dominates the fourth round. Uh, and then Robbie Lawler ends up finding a way to knock out Rory McDonald. He had already shattered his nose earlier in the fight, and then he landed a straight punch. And the way McDonald describes the sensation of that was he, all, everything just went white. His nose had already been busted to the point where he got hit in the nose again, and if you've ever been hit in the face with anything in the nose and it, or it punched in the nose, you know that as soon as your nose get hit, gets hit, your eyes start to water, and it, that just completely skipped over that for McDonald at that point. He got hit in the nose on what it was already busted. He said that everything went completely white, and all he could do was fall down. But that was one of the greatest fights that I've ever seen and I think Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje also I would classify as one of the best fights that I've seen in a different way though um, this is a different this is a little bit of a different circumstance because these two were scheduled to fight two weeks ago on the original date of UFC 249 that fell through because they couldn't get a location or a venue or sanctioned so then they postpone it two weeks. It happens last night. And I was already nervous once that happened because 
Tony, I I think Tony's one of the best lightweights on the planet. I think he would have been able to compete with Khabib, maybe even beat him. Who knows? Uh, it, we you can't really gauge whether or not he'd beat Khabib from the fight last night. Gaethje is a wild man, tough as tough as they come. Has really good power, especially for the division. World class wrestling. Graduated from UNC. Was on the wrestling team. But in his entire UFC career, he's gotten himself in trouble because he lands big shots, tries to rush in, and then he gets caught again and, and ends up getting knocked out. So going into it, when it was going to be short notice for Gaethje, I liked Ferguson's chances because Gaethje wasn't getting prepared to fight anybody specific. Tony is such an unorthodox fighter anyways with his footwork and his Yamari rolls and he he basically do, he, he incorporates breakdancing and all different kinds of combat into the way that he does his footwork. So he's he's an odd guy anyways to have to go in and fight. But uh, once they moved it back and Gagey got the entire camp and then he knew who he was fighting, that was where I got nervous because Tony does not start fast. Gaethje starts right as the first round goes. He probably starts 10 minutes before the fight back in the locker room. Uh, I was making the joke last night that he's probably gnawing on the door handle. And, and he was lucky that the fight before him only went to the second round. Because if it would have went any longer, uh, they probably would have had busted doors in that arena in Jacksonville last night. That's just how much of an animal he is. He's ready to go. He can turn it on, turn it off. And... Is he comes out and and it's it's go time, so that made me nervous. But I still thought Ferguson would be able to weather the storm early, and then he'd figure out the different ways to get to Justin Gaethje. A couple of things that I didn't know going into the fight though was Gaethje's striking coach is Trevor Whitman, who used to coach Shane Carwin back in the day when he was in the UFC, and everybody has said he's one of the most brilliant minds when it comes to the striking aspect of fighting. So that was an X factor I wasn't aware of. Also, Gaethje, he he really learned from his mistakes in his previous fights. He's on a he was on a win streak already, going into the fight, and then he had learned from all those times where he had hurt guys and then tried to rush in and ended up getting caught. So whenever he would hurt Tony, he would hang back. Tony Ferguson is inhuman. If you ever get the chance to watch this fight or the replay of this fight, I would highly recommend it. And if you can figure out how to how to explain to me Tony Ferguson still standing, you can uh, tweet at me at Jimmy Pilato at COAPod73 or email me. Uh, at that point, you can send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. If you can explain to me how Tony Ferguson ate some of those shots that he got hit with by Justin Gaethje last night and was still standing. And the only thing that happened, the only reason that it got stopped was by the time he was wobbled on at the end when he did stop in the fifth round, there was you could tell that he was he had finally been taken to the point where he was starting to get into the dangerous territory because Gaethje was still going to be hitting him with bombs. I mean, Ferguson didn't have a comeback for that all night. He would, he would answer back with some shots, but he was never getting his head out of the way. It was almost like he had totally forgot about his head movement. Uh, but I would say from about four minutes left in the fifth round till the end of the fight, Gagey didn't miss a single shot that he threw. Snap jabs, right hooks, crosses, anything like that, it was landing, it was going. 
So if you can, like I said, if you can explain to me how Tony Ferguson lasted until 3:39 in the fifth round after absorbing some of these bombs that he had to absorb, I'm all ears, and I'll listen to anybody. But that was one of the best performances I think I've seen, individual performances, and it's one of the better fights that I've seen for a while. Because even though Gaethje was beating up Ferguson basically the entire fight, Ferguson was throwing stuff back, so it wasn't like. Oh, Gaethje's totally going to win. You could tell from the beginning. It wasn't a domination thing at all. It was, I'm going to beat you to this point, and you're gonna, I'm going to let you beat me to this point. I thought that he was trying to let Gaethje punch himself out, and then he was going to be able to come back because he was doing all those different mind game tactics. just didn't end up working out that way. And Gaethje ended up walking away with the TKO finish in round 5 at 339 from punches. Like I said, overall, the event, I think, worked out as well as they could. Um, Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville. Good on you guys for allowing this fight to take place and not chickening out at the last second. I think it was an important thing to have happen. And now... We will move on to... A little bit more of the silly news in sports not necessarily silly it's pretty it's a pretty serious thing that happened it's just a silly circumstance and and you know this guy has millions and millions of dollars and and this, this is how you know that athletes are human just like everybody else so over the weekend Earl Thomas I think one of the best safeties in the league right now, possibly on the list for the greatest, one of the greatest safeties of all time, playing for the Baltimore Ravens, was held at gunpoint by his wife while amidst an orgy that included, I believe, four or five women and Earl Thomas's brother. How they got to that point is probably the more interesting part of the story. Even though, when I tell you Earl Thomas, all pro safety for the NFL, and his brother were held at gunpoint by Thomas's wife when they were having an orgy with a bunch of women that his wife was not invited to. That is, that is a little bit more of a random story than I think a lot of people were expecting. But it gets better. Uh, apparently, the story goes that Earl Thomas and his wife were arguing, and uh, it got they had been arguing for a while. And, and when I was talking to my parents about this, they were actually making the pretty funny joke that it's about time for training camp to start. So they were only arguing because Earl Thomas is getting on his wife's nerves. Um, anyway, anyways, at some point, Earl Thomas's brother shows up, and I. I, I that point it looks like he's just trying to remove him from the situation so that nothing happens we obviously with greg hardy stuff there's a there's a history of domestic violence in the nfl with some of their players and at the way that the optic looks it looks like thomas's brother was just trying to remove him from that situation so that they didn't have one of those disputes that turned ugly um i can think of chris henry back in the early two in the 2000s for the Bengals. he was in a fight with his wife she tried to drive off. He jumped in the back of their truck and ended up falling out the back of the truck and dying. So this, as silly as it is, it could have been very tragic if a couple of things didn't go the way that they did. 
But anyways, Thomas's brother drives him from their house to wherever they're going to have this orgy with who knows how many women. Um, Thomas's wife broke in or hacked into Thomas's Snapchat and found his location, found that he was around a whole bunch of girls and his brother. She called up her her gang of friends, and I'm going to say gang of friends because they all showed up with knives. Thomas's wife showed up with what she thought was an empty gun, but it was a pistol or a Glock, and if you know anything about that, there's usually bullets in the mag, but then also one bullet gets put in the chamber. There was no magazine in the gun, but there was a bullet in the gun. Uh, and Earl, Earl Thomas and his brother while in the middle of whatever they were doing with whoever they were with get five of his wife's friends with big knives like big kitchen knives and Earl Thomas's wife with a gun that they probably didn't know it was, wasn't fully loaded I was going to say that it wasn't loaded but it was um and Earl Thomas's wife ended up getting arrested for aggravated assault. That could have possibly turned even worse. Who who knows what happens if she tries to scare Earl Thomas and pull the trigger and that bullet is in the chamber. This could have, like I said, this could have been a very much more tragic story. And none of that ended up happening. So it ends up going down as just really, really silly for 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 what's been going on. <laughs> so with all of that happening over the weekend I just also found an article asking whether or not the Cowboys are going to be going after Earl Thomas. Cowboys are also significant because they are the ones who picked up Andy Dalton and got him out of Cincinnati. So now he will be in a different uniform than the Origin Black for the Cardiac Cats for the first time in his career. But they are also wondering whether or not the Cowboys will have a shot to get Earl Thomas because the Ravens at this point are investigating whether or not this incident violated Thomas's contract. Um, according to Jonas Schaefer and Jessica Anderson of the Baltimore Sun, an anonymous team official revealed coaches having concerns about Thomas's ability to learn the defensive scheme. There's also talk of a potential rift between the veteran safety and his teammates because of his freelancing style of play. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, he's a great player. Like I said, I could be on the list for greatest safety of all time when his career's over. Super Bowl champion in Seattle. Has been an all-pro pretty much his entire time that he's been in the league other than last year. But, I mean, even then, last year when he had, or not last year, two years ago when he was playing out his last year on the franchise tag for the Seahawks and he gets injured and, and flips the entire crowd off. You know, that's that's not a look that I would want somebody to be in my professional franchise making multi-million dollars, no matter how good of a football player he is. And then if he's not listening to the coaches, refusing to learn the defensive scheme, and then his players don't like him because they don't, he doesn't play well behind him, I don't know why you keep him at this point. This would be, for me, this would be the best place to release a player like this because 
obviously he has problems off the field. He can bring those problems into the locker room. The Ravens have to figure something out. I mean, how, how do you how do you be the greatest? How, how do you be one of the greatest safeties to ever play? And and don't learn a scheme. Don't like your coaches. Don't endear yourself to the players. Don't try and be a team player. You you obviously just want to be out for yourself. So why why the hell would I keep you around my team? I I would. I don't know. The Ravens were 14-2 and going into the playoffs, and then Earl Thomas came out and talked all that trash about how he no, nobody is tough enough to uh, tackle a guy like Derrick Henry. And then that was probably my favorite highlight of the entire playoffs is when Derrick Henry stiff arms him, turns Earl Thomas into his lead blocker, and shoves him into another one of the Ravens' defenders while he keeps gaining some extra yards. This just... This incident, plus how he treats the people around him on his team, and not a very good teammate. I think the Ravens should drop him. I, I wouldn't unless I am the Patriots, who have been, who have shown an ability to take players like this and then mold them into the player that they want. Maybe, but then they also have a pretty stacked defensive backfield. Anyways, uh, I would not want this headache. This is a locker room cancer at its finest. Uh, no matter how good of a player he is, he's never going to gain as much success as he had in Seattle because now he's all about himself. Now all he wants is money and, and, and fame, and he'd be the exact opposite of a guy like Andy Dalton. For all of the problems that I have with Andy Dalton, it stems mainly from the fact that he was Marvin Lewis's favorite player. I never liked Marvin Lewis after he proved he couldn't win a playoff game. And then also Andy Dalton proved that he can never win a playoff game as well. I mean, I don't, I, there was like a three or four year span where the Bengals would go to the playoffs and get beat by the Texans in the first round. And I don't even want to mention the 2015 wild card game, but there I go. I already mentioned it. That game was probably the most sick I have felt as a, a fan of any team watching a sporting event, just the way that ended. And, you know, Dalton didn't even play. That was A.J. McCarron because Dalton was hurt. But it was time for him to leave the Bengals. I don't have any ill feelings towards him. And if things go the way that they have been for the people that the Bengals have let go over the past few years, he's going to go somewhere, have a lot of success, possibly win at least a, a conference championship, maybe even a Super Bowl championship. Because that's what happened with Andrew Whitworth when the Bengals decided that he was not good enough to play anymore. The only thing that I didn't like about this I mean, I, I feel like it's time for the franchise to transition. They have had Andy Dalton for the last 10 years. That's great. That's fine. He's done all he could. But he, I feel like even when he was coming out into the draft, everybody knew that he was not a guy that could lead you to a championship. You're going to have to put a great team around him, and the Bengals are too cheap and not enough of a free agent hotspot to do that and have a guy like that. But I wanted him to be there, um, and I wanted a little bit like... Hopefully it didn't end up being like Trubisky the last couple of years, but uh, Matt Glenn and Mitch Trubisky type deal where Joe Burrow comes in. He's already been studying the playbook, but he comes in, learns from Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton can go out there and play and see where the talent level is with you know T. Higgins that they picked up in this year's second round, see what John Ross does. If A.J. Green wants to come back and play for the Bengals, Joe Mixon obviously 
but then if they struggled, they would have the ability for Joe not to have to come right in. And I, I, I don't know. I got to look a lot more at the roster. I got to look at a lot more of the picks that they had in this year's draft. But I just don't think that this is a good situation to have a guy who's never played in the league before come come in. It's it's going to be a tall order. I mean. Burrow is is a good quarterback, and I'm glad that we got him. He's the guy that I wanted us to draft, but I don't know if he's a Peyton Manning to where he's going to have as much time as Peyton did to struggle and then get better. I feel like this move, the Andy Dalton going to the Cowboys, and now you have Ryan Finley and Joe Burrow as the two quarterbacks in Cincinnati. I've talked about it before. Ryan Finley was the guy that played. Andy Dalton played bad, got benched last year. Finley played worse and got re-benched for a guy who was already benched. And I just don't know why getting rid of your leadership in the quarterback room when you drafted a new quarterback and now he's going to be the starter because let's, let's let's call a spade a spade. And Ryan Finley is never going to be a starting quarterback. I can see him being a Josh McCown type at some point, but he's never going to be a franchise quarterback, starting quarterback. So you're bringing in the guy you drafted number one overall, had possibly the greatest college football season of all time, and you're just going to put him out there with a very, very mediocre at best team. I mean, if they if they have all their offensive weapons, that's great, but they don't have an offensive line that can block a wet paper bag. We'll, we'll see if that changes with Jonah Williams and Jonah Williams coming back after missing all of last season with a bad shoulder. But they they have no offensive line. Their defensive line is getting old. Their linebackers can't tackle. Um, Drake or Patrick's the only DB that can cover. There's There was a lot of other problems that this team had, and Joe Burrow is not going to come in and all of a sudden make you a playoff contending team. Joe Burrow... When you when you go three and thirteen the year before, with the amount of talent that you had in the room, and the fact that you neglect the two most important position groups, offensive and defensive line, this is a move where you go from three and thirteen to possibly five and eleven, six and ten the next year, and then hopefully the next year they have more offensive linemen that they can pull from, possibly bring in a free agent or something, but. I see Burrow being able, Burrow and Higgins being able to get us to possibly five, six wins, but that's all I can see. I mean, they have a rough schedule too. And the Bengals are in the same division as the Browns, Steelers, and Ravens. So, I mean, I've the AFC North is, is pretty stacked as a conference. I would say probably the... AFC East or AFC West and the NFC West are the only other two divisions that could be any more difficult from top to bottom. But as scheduled for now, the Bengals would open with the Chargers at home. I could see them possibly winning that game. We'll see what happens with Philip uh, with Philip Rivers not there anymore and Chargers going with Tyrod Taylor. No Melvin Gordon, but they did re-sign Austin Eckler. Uh, that's going to be a knockdown dragout game. Going to the Eagles, I count that as a loss. At the Ravens, that's a loss. Browns, uh, it'll depend on whether or not 
Um, this coach is smarter than Freddie Kitchens. I can see them splitting with the Browns. So this is the Browns go to them in week four. So I see the Bengals possibly winning against the Browns in Cincinnati. Then they go to Pittsburgh. Uh, I don't can't remember the last time that they won in Pittsburgh. Let's look it up. Let's let's see how how badly we can make Jimmy feel by the end of this podcast. When was the last time the Bengals won in Pittsburgh? Wow. Will this not just show me? Well, last year, the uh, it's been November first, twenty fifteen, was the last time the Bengals beat the Steelers at all. Wow. Yep, we have now made Jimmy regret all of his football fandom. For the rest of this podcast, the Giants after the Steelers possibly could pick up a win there. Cowboys in December, we'll see whether or not Mike McCarthy holds the Cowboys together and if they're going to have Dak Prescott or Andy Dalton playing. Going to the Texans in December, eh, it's not as tough of a matchup as it was last year when they had DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun Watson, but. Playing at Houston is a tough place to play for the Bengals. Obviously, they lost three straight wildcard games there. At Cleveland, I mean, they could, at this point, actually, actually, let's, let's start over because I thought that they had this linear year and they did not. So, September 13th, week one, the Bengals will host the Chargers. I'm going I'm to say that they win that one. So, they start the season 1-0. and Then, they go to Cleveland. I don't see Cleveland dropping this game to an inferior division opponent. So now they're sitting at 1-1. One one. Then they go to Philadelphia. That's a loss. Sitting at 1-2. and two. Host Jacksonville. I think they can beat Jacksonville because the Jaguars are just as disarrayed as the Bengals are. So now they're sitting at 500 through the first month. But then they go at the Ravens, at the Colts. I think those are two losses. We'll see if Phillip Rivers does anything better with the Colts. But... Bengals on the road have not been good in the past couple years. Unless it's like the last week of the season and they need to win the last the Week 17 game to put the Bills into, into the playoffs. So October 11th, they go, to the Bal- they go to Baltimore. October 18th, they go to Indianapolis. Then the Browns come home the 25th. I can see them, like I said, I see them winning, beating the Browns at home at least. So they, uh, they at least split. So they had we had them two and two coming out of September. They fall to two and four, and then they get one back. So they're three and four, and then they host Tennessee. And this will be an interesting one because now Tennessee has invested in Tannehill, um, and they've invested in offensive line, and still have Derrick Henry. Their record didn't wasn't that great last year, but the Titans got hot really at a good time, but I could see maybe them struggling at this point. I'm going to say that they're going to lose. 
not going to be that delusional. So then they're three and five. Then November fifteenth, they go to Pittsburgh for their first matchup against the Steelers. Counting that as loss, three and six. Then they go to Washington. I think they beat Washington because Washington is also one of those franchises that they are on the same level as, where they have no idea what they're doing. So then they're four and six, and then they host the Giants. And I think that their their offense is good enough to compete with the Giants. Um, I'll I, I'll say they they win that one. So then they go, they'll be five and six, and then they go to Miami. At this point, it's December sixth. Who knows if two is playing or not? I think if Fitzpatrick is healthy and has been playing well, it'll probably be him. But if the Dolphins start off zero and three, zero and four and they're not selling any tickets, with it, if they have limited amount of fans that can be there or not, that is going to be difficult for the Dolphins. And if that's Tua's first start, maybe, possibly, the Dolphins sneak out a win there just because the Bengals have never seen Tua before, but that's a toss-up. So uh, at this point, they're either 6-6 six and six or 5-7 and seven after December 6th. And then for the last month of this regular season... They would host the Cowboys December 13th, depending on whether or not the Cowboys are in contention for the division. I'm, I'm not ready to give them th- that win yet, so let's just say they're 5-8. Um, and eight. Lose to the Steelers the next week at home. That's the that's their only primetime game, thank, thank God. Um, I think they lose to them at home, so then they're 5-9. and nine. Then they go to Houston at that point in the year. I'm going to count that as a loss. And then they host the Ravens. Um, so, yeah, like I said, probably 5-11, and 6-10. and 10, Somewhere around there is where I'm predicting them to go. I know a lot of the Bengals fans are super excited and think Joe Burrow is going to come in and be able to give the Bengals a 10-win jump. No, it's not going to happen. They're still not going to be over 500, and they're still not going to be in contention for the playoffs, not even a wild card, even with the extra wild card team that they're going to be going with. Anyways, now transitioning out of football and back to the UFC, we are going to have another fight this upcoming weekend, also at Five Star Veterans Memorial Arena out there in Jacksonville. And the headliner of this card, I believe this is this is either an ESPN Plus card or it's not a this is not a pay per view. Main event is Alistair Overeem and Walt Harris. Harris minus one sixty favorite. Um, if you if you have been follow, if you follow MMA, you know the story about Walt Harris and why he's such a tragic figure. Um, it was released either late last year or earlier in this year that his stepdaughter was missing. They have not found her, so the police where, I can't remember where he's living, have confirmed her to be deceased. Um, And that that just, it's a tough, tough situation. Nobody likes to see kids get involved. I think she was 16 or something like that. And he had been in her life for a long time. And who knows why, who knows who, who knows what caused this to happen, but unfortunately they were not able to find his stepdaughter. So he he will now be fighting in his first event since that happened, and he's fighting a legend in Alistair Overeem. 
um, most famously known for taking steroids in the UFC and kicking Brock Lesnar and his diverticulitis. As he's still a world-class striker, but Walt Harris being as athletic as he is, he's the young, hungry lion. He's an inch taller, about 10 pounds heavier, giving up three inches to reach, but he's athletic, he's a southpaw, has knockout power, and Alistair doesn't have as strong of a chin as he used to when he was on, on the juice. So if, if I was a betting man, I would probably... This plus 130 for Alistair is not as safe of an underdog bet as as I would think. I'm still going to say that Walt Harris, I believe, will pick up the win in the main event of the upcoming event. Other big fights on the card, Claudia Gedalia, the strawweight division fight, and Angela Hill. Those are two women at that weight class who have always been around the title contention. Uh, Matt Brown is going to be fighting on, on the prelim card. And I would say that's about it for if you're not as a diehard of a fan as I am, then you won't know any recognize any of the other names on the card. But I would definitely check out the Harris Overeem fight and the Hill Gedalia fight if you have the chance. Uh, but I think this is great that the UFC has a, another event upcoming. And I, I think, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think that they did everything the right way. This was an important event to have happen because now everybody's seen that we can come to a place for a competition. They got tested as soon as they, as soon as they got there, and the fighter that did test positive, Jacare Souza, and his cornerman both got sent home as soon as they tested positive. Everybody else was negative. Um, no crowd. The commentator sat at separate tables. The um, corner men were all wearing masks. The doctor wore a mask. The only people that weren't wearing masks at the time were the commentators, the referee, and then the two fighters as well. Joe Rogan also was able to conduct his post-fight interviews in the Octagon. A lot of people thought that they were going to have to do them virtually. So I think that overall, a lot of this is a good thing. And hopefully this is not seen as a fluke thing. And I, I think now people are starting to see that, hey, maybe we can hold events, um, and maybe we can even start opening up a little bit to fans. But at this point, I'm just happy that there's a couple live events going on. But that's going to bring us to the the wrap-up point of this episode. Like I said, I'm going to be watching The Last Dance and... um, seeing what else is going on for the rest of the week, and then I'll talk about that a little bit more on next Monday's sports episode. Also, I'm going to try and get Dom uh, to watch film on the Jets picks, and I'll watch film on the Bengals picks that I'm not too familiar with. I'll watch film on all of them, and then we'll meet and kind of have a breakdown a little bit of those two for next week's sports episode. Um, But... Thank you guys for listening to another episode. I feel like this is a a good bounce back one now that this is the first one that is just me and not me with a guest or me with somebody else that I can bounce back and forth off of. I think this was a good bounce back episode for that. Glad to be home Um, to all the other members of the class of 2020, whether it's college or high school. We did it. We are still not getting everything that we deserve, but... Now we know for sure that we're one of the toughest classes because we've been able to go through this and everybody's still standing and we're still moving towards becoming normal again. And I think that we're going to be normal a lot sooner than people are expecting. 
please follow the show's Twitter at COA Pod seventy three and uh, follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Pilato, my Instagram at Proud underscore WAP, and if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show five stars, leave a review that helps push us into the algorithm a little bit more. You can reach out on any of those platforms. I'll be listening, looking out for those. And tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you don't like about the show. If you, I had an opinion you didn't agree with, I'm more than happy to debate with you. Um, and, and who knows, if your debate, if your argument is good enough, maybe I'll feature it on the podcast at some point coming up in the future. But um, like I said, we'll be back on Thursday with a regular episode and then again next Monday for another sports episode. Um, but for now, this has been center of attention. I'm the Italian stallion Jimmy Pilato. Thank you for letting me be your center of attention. And we will see you guys on Thursday. Coming in my direction. So thankful for that. Such a blessing, yeah. Turn every situation into heaven, yeah. Oh, you are. My sunrise on the darkest day. Got me feeling some kind of way. Make me want to savor every moment slowly. Slowly. You fit me, tell me.